Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, it says, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those from the first, uh, sorry, uh, those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. And with this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. And so the book of Luke traditionally is believed to be written by Luke the doctor, who traveled with uh, Paul on many of his missionary journeys. He also wrote the book of Acts. And uh, in addition to uh, Irenaeus, the second century church father, and some other people uh, they identified Luke as the author, and if you remember, the writer of Acts several times is, is writing in the third person, and then all of a sudden it switches to the first person, because whoever's writing the book of Luke, all of a sudden it says, we. We were going together. We were in the shipwreck. The storm came upon us. All this type of stuff. And so, by process of elimination, all the other people are named in the third person, except for Luke, and so you kind of narrow it down to that, and along with uh, first century or second century church fathers saying, oh yeah, Luke wrote this book, we know. And so basically Luke is the author, he also wrote the book of Acts, and beginning in verse 1, he, he tells us that this his account is not the first, It's but it's for those who, it's but there, those were before him, uh, there were those who were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, that is Jesus Christ. They handed down their accounts of the life and the ministry of Jesus. Uh, and these would be Matthew, Mark, and John uh, that, that we know of. And so there were other gospels written by those uh, disciples of Christ. And so as the eyewitnesses are beginning to die off here, uh, Luke in verse 3 tells us that he carefully investigated everything from the beginning and decided to write an orderly account of uh, for this guy named Theophilus. Um, one of the things that's kind of pressing upon us, how many this past week uh, uh, of, uh, you know, uh, on December 7th, realize and remember the importance of Pearl Harbor. 75 years ago, the Japanese surprise attacked Pearl Harbor. Well, how many eyewitnesses do we have left of that account? <laughs> yeah, isn't that, isn't that amazing? And so over the last 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, there's been a pressing uh, desire upon people to preserve those eyewitnesses accounts as the generations are passing away. And so it's not just hearsay, it's, it's, it's getting that eyewitness account. What did they see? What did they do? And how did that happen? My grandfather's 95 years old. He was on the USS Brazos or something like that. It was called. He was an, on an oil tanker in Alaska when Pearl Harbor hit. And he told me firsthand account about where he traveled, and he said that was one of the most scariest events um, in his life, and it actually caused him to come to Christ because here he is pitching coal or whatever it is in the very bottom of a oil tanker, and you know you don't see the light of day, and and you're getting attacked. You're at war, and it really you realize that, and, and many people went down in ships, and. It's just a very interesting thing to talk to someone who was who was there, who was in the war, and what the perspectives were, and to actually handle some of the weapons that were there 
uh, and things like that. Um, but Luke is, is ha- as the disciples are getting killed and as the apostles are, are going off into different lands, the, the time is being pressed and, and the desire to write an orderly account of something that absolutely revolutionizes the whole known world at the time, Jesus Christ risen from the dead. They wanted to write these things down. So Luke is saying, I, I, I've talked to all these people. I wouldn't talk to all the disciples that were living. I've talked to maybe Mary and all these other people. I've gotten their first-hand accounts. I've investigated it thoroughly. And my point is to give you an orderly account, Theophilus. Now, how many of you um, enjoy uh, someone who has the ability to check out all the things that have happened in a big giant situation and then to bring them into an orderly account to take you from the, maybe the beginning to end chronologically and explain how something happens or take the certain <clears throat> things that happened that were impactful. I think in 9-11, for example, uh, something that, that was totally chaotic, for example, in, in, our, in our society. I mean, you just know that planes hit, but then you see amazing investigative reporters who actually take it and they timeline it out and they pull different stories from different people and what was happening, when and where and how. And it takes some groundwork to go investigate that and they pull it all together and you watch it and you kind of get a fuller sense of what really happened. That's what Luke is doing. John said, uh, the, the disciple John in, in chapter 21, he said, I suppose... That if we were to record all the things that Christ really did, there wouldn't be enough libraries to hold the books that would contain all these things. In other words, it's inexhaustible. You just can't, you can't get to all he says. And so Luke is going, he's talking to people, he's pulling out, and he's going to draw a narrative for us. And it was really for this guy named Theophilus. Interesting thing about Theophilus, some, it means lover of God. And many people think that this is a code word of maybe perhaps a, a man. Uh, a, the, the name was actually uh, maybe the group of the church. He was writing to the church, but he was kind of doing a code name, kind of like you have to do now if you're writing to missions overseas in places that are hostile to the gospel. And so um, some people think that. I think it's personally just a guy named Theophilus because they say most excellent Theophilus. If you remember Luke back, uh, Luke writing, recording Paul before Festus in Acts, he says, hey, uh, most excellent Festus. And he calls this guy most excellent Festus. Now, he wasn't a fan of Bill and Ted's excellent adventure. He was actually, yeah, that's an old joke, I know. Come on, you over 30s, laugh. Ha, ha, ha. But he was most excellent Theophilus, and what, what, that was a title for someone who was in government in, 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 a, in a ranking position. Most excellent Felix. Now, Felix. now, Felix was a rat, but he was still called most excellent. You give the title and, and respect uh, when you're in front of the person, I guess. And so he's writing, he's saying, most excellent Theophilus there in verse 3. And so he says in verse 3... Um, well, let me, let me go back for a second. He said, I personally think Luke is writing to that, to that man who's in some sort of position and authority named Theophilus who, who got saved probably on one of Paul's missionary's journeys. Uh, Luke is a Gentile as far as we know, or at least a Hellenistic Jew, in other words, with, with Greek background in him. And uh, I think he's writing to a non-Jew. And I, he's writing so that this one man would know the certainty of the things he'd been taught. 
So this one man would know the certainty of the things he had been taught. And that's the same goal that the Holy Spirit would have for us as we seek to uh, read this letter here 2,000 years later. Uh, That as we read and we study this account of the life and the ministry of Jesus, we would know the certainty of the one we believe and in whom, uh, who taught us, basically, uh, we've been taught about. And, and to think that Luke, Luke put an incredible amount of time and energy in researching all these things and compiling it into a letter to deliver to this one person. Do you think Luke understood the impact that his letter would have upon nations to come, the world to come? I think he had no clue. He was simply following the Holy Spirit as he was going about and compiling and using the gifts that he had. Being a doctor, it seems like he's just got this incredible mind to put things together in an orderly way. How many of you like um, doctors when they're going to do surgery and they're like, hmm, maybe. <laughs> or we could do that, you know. I'll see. It's just shoot and holler, as my grandpa says. No, I want someone who's like going to go, this is what we're going to do, this is where we're going to go, and these are the steps, and this is what... I, I, I like that kind of thinking. And so Luke is just, he's that kind of guy. He's going to pull that orderly account. He wants to lay it out so that Theophilus would know. And I don't think Luke really had a clue what God was going to do in and through him. You know, just be faithful with the ministry that God's given you. The things that might seem insignificant in your life, the letters you've written, the time spent, the people that you're with. You don't know what God will do with your faithfulness to him, what he will do in and through you. Uh, for not only them, for the, for the generations to come. And so Luke, in verse 5, he begins his orderly account, and uh, he is writing about the beginning of the birth of John the Baptist, the forerunner, the person who would declare that the Messiah is coming, that Jesus Christ is coming. And we'll get to that in a bit. But verse 5 says, In the meantime, uh, sorry, in the time of King Herod of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly, but they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both very old. And so Luke gives us a time marker in verse time. In verse 5, uh, Herod was the king of Judea during this time period, and that would have been 39 to 4 B.C., right in there. And so this would be at the end of Herod's life. Herod was basically a big giant politician. Remember Jacob back in, in, in Genesis? Jacob had a brother named Esau. Well, Esau had descendants too, and they would be the Edomites. Herod was descended from those guys. And so the people who would receive the law were the sons of Jacob. And all the 12 tribes. And so this guy was kind of like a cousin. He was an outsider. And so he kind of was like a Jew in name only. He didn't really care about all that. He was really after, he was politically savvy. And he was called Herod the Great because he was this tall and he had a giant ego. And he uh, built a lot of things. And so he named himself. But Zechariah was a priest during Herod's reign. In order to be a priest, you had to be a descendant of Aaron who were of the tribe of the Levites. Now, as I mentioned, Jacob when it had 12 sons, and those became the 12 tribes. And all those tribes would eventually, 400 years after they, after, uh, they were born, their descendants, after they came out of Egypt, 
would go back into the land and they would all inherit the land, the promised land. They would all get different parts of the land. So it was divided up by tribe, except for the Levites. The Levites weren't given land. They were in charge of ministering to the Lord in his temple and the tabernacle and all those things. And they would survive off the, the offerings of everybody else. And that's the, that was the priesthood. They didn't have the land. They took care of the worship of, of the Lord. And Zechariah was a descendant of Aaron, who was one of the first priests. And so you go back there, um, both Zechariah and Elizabeth were descendants of Aaron. And Zechariah served as a priest under the division of Abijah. So there were divisions of priests under that group. And it says of Zechariah and Elizabeth in verse 6, that both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive. And they were both very old. In, the, in that culture, being childless, as it is sometimes, sometimes in modern cultures, uh, uh, is an, had an incredible stigma attached to it. Um, one of the very foundational things that God said to Adam and Eve was to be go and be fruitful and multiply. Go have kids. And so having kids, biblically, from those times would be a sign of, a, of, of God's blessing upon you. If you remember back in the story of Jacob, Jacob had a, had, had a wife uh, who he, he loved. you remember he worked seven years for Rachel? I always get those mixed up because my mom's name Rebecca and my sister's name Rachel, so I'm just dyslexic. So he worked for her, but she couldn't have kids, but he, his, her sister Leah did, right? And Leah had like six kids, and every time she named them, she named them, oh, look, God's blessed me because I have one more and all that stuff. And, and then they go have handmaidens, and so there's like four different women. There's a bunch of different kids, and that's why Joseph gets thrown in the pit because when he gets born, his mom names him Lord Increase, like Lord Give Increase. Like this is the first, maybe many more. His name Joseph. So it's interesting how they named their kids according to what they wanted. And so Joseph was was very prized because she was a son, and that's why he had the coat and all. He was a favorite. They got a lot of problems there. But anyway, so if you didn't have kids, it was it was a very it was a it was a very harsh culture to to live in. You, you were assumed that you did something wrong. That you must have sinned. You must have done something in order to not receive the blessing of the Lord. And that is just not the case. It says both of them were righteous in the sight of God. They obeyed all His commands. Both of them were righteous. You know? So they loved the Lord. They were obedient. And yet something they very deeply desired was withheld with them from them. And they suffered. Culturally. They suffered stigma. And it says, on top of being childless in verse 7, that they were both very old. So not just old, they were very old. The idea is that they were way far past doing anything about get, having kids. Does that make sense? That's why the emphasis is there. And the reason why the writer does that is because he's leading up to something that would let you know something uh, otherwise, because John is going to be born from these people. Verse 8, once when Zechariah's <clears throat> division was on duty, there were divisions of these priests, and they would get chosen lots, and they would serve at certain times of the year. And once when Zechariah's division was on duty, and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot, 
according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and to burn incense. Now, the law of Moses says that incense was to be burned before the Lord morning and evening. Exodus 30, verse 7 and 8. The incense represents the prayers of the people. It's like the incense would come into the the nostrils, a sweet-smelling aroma to the Lord. He loves our prayers. Amen? Notice it was morning and evening when when uh, the incense was to be burned in the temple. Now, the odds of him being chosen to be that priest on that day are very rare. Very rare. There was probably around 20,000 priests. And so his, you know, it's a a once-in-a-lifetime situation, basically. 1 Chronicles uh, chapter 24 talks about how they were divided into their roles, and you can read that for extra credit. But the temple uh, had different sections. As we talked about it before, there was the outer court where the Gentiles would be, then there was the court where the women were, and then as you get closer, there was the Israelites where the men were. And then as you got closer in, there was where the priests would minister, and there was then the building with with the holy place which inside the, well, there was the altar and the steps that went up there, but then there was, as you went into the holy place, there was the showbread, table of showbread, and then there was the the lamp of light, and then in front of them would be this curtain, this curtain that would block everybody from the holy of holies, which would be behind that, and that was where the, the high priest only went in there once a year with blood, right? Well, every day they went and ministered in the holy place, the place right before, well, right before the altar, I mean, right before the, the veil, and the other side of the veil was the, the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat, right? But on this side were the incense. There was a, there was a three-foot-high, 18-inch-wide bowl, and it was right before the veil. And they would go in there morning and evening to go minister to the Lord. And, and what would happen is all the priests would proceed. People would gather in the morning outside in their various areas, and the priests would come before it, and the three priests would go down the middle, and those three priests would go into the holy place, not the holy of holies, the holy place, and one of them would set up the incense, one of them would set up this, and, and, then, the, and then what would happen is they would leave that person who was dedicated to be the priest who would offer the incense after they lit it and they gave it to him, they'd back away and they'd go away and he'd be in there alone. And so that's what's happening here. Zechariah was chosen, a once in a lifetime situation. Verse 10, and when the time for the burning of the incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside and then an angel of the Lord appeared to him standing at the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. Now, you must know that angels are not chubby little baby girls with wings and little tiny bows and arrows. They're always represented as guys. That's just how they are. And they're often glowing and fierce in the reaction to every human being when they see an angel in his glorified presence, in their glorified state, is they either fall down as though we're dead or they are gripped with fear and they are beside themselves begging for help. They are fierce. And that's exactly what the protocol is here. And thankfully, verse 13, Zechariah sees him. He is beside himself. He's startled and he's gripped with fear. Imagine that. You're praying. The altar of incense is right here in front of you. You're, the, the presence of God is on the other side of the altar. You can't wait. I mean, you're, just, you're as close to God as you're going to get in that society. It's huge that Jesus died, folks, and the, the veil was torn and he came out towards us. 
Sinful man cannot go into that place. And here he is as close as he can get. Today, the Jews still think that, you know, that, that God is about location. And that's why they go play, pray at that western wall, because they're getting as close as they can to where the Holy of Holies once stood. <clears throat> it's very important. And here he is, as close to God as you're going to be, and he's got the incense, and he's praying, and all of a sudden, poof, right next to him. Mr. Fantabulous just, and he's just blown away, gripped with fear. The angel said to him, verse 13, don't be afraid, Zechariah, your prayers have been heard. Now the angel who, who we see here is, is Gabriel, <clears throat> and he says, don't be afraid, and calls him by name. And then he says, your prayers have been heard. What prayer? What prayer is he praying? Now, we don't know exactly what Zechariah is praying, so this is me kind of freestyling right here. But he's supposed to be praying for the people, Right? This is my impression. This is a once-in-a-lifetime situation. He has been chosen to pray in the actual temple, only a few feet away from the Holy of Holies, where the presence of the Lord was. And he loved the Lord. And he had this one opportunity to pray right there. And what does he pray for? I think he's praying for a child. This is just me. I think I, even as an old man, and as he's praying, the angel of the Lord, not just any angel, but Gabriel, appears and says, don't be afraid. Your prayer has been heard. Now let me ask you, why did God withhold something so good from them? Why did God withhold something so good from them? They hadn't sinned. It wasn't all that stuff. They just, things were withheld from them. Things that were good. Was it because they didn't love the Lord? They weren't obeying? No. How many times have they prayed for the Lord to the Lord and yet the heavens were silent? How many years? How many years? And when they came to the reality that that ship had sailed, how difficult might that have been? <clears throat> and yet here's Zechariah, close to the Lord in that moment, he lays his heart's desire before the Lord. He's got his moment, and I think he's just like, Lord, if you're ever going to hear me, it's now. I'm right next to you. I think he was laying out his heart. And you know, I can look at this and say, hey, pastor, you're supposed to be praying for the people. <laughs> what are you doing, Zechariah? You're taking time for your own personal prayer requests. But you know, I think it was God working out the perfect timing, the appointed time. So that their barrenness and their pain and their lack and their heartache would be funneled to a day when by God's providence, Zechariah would draw the lot in his old age to minister before the Lord that year at that time so that he would be standing before the Lord in prayer Praying a prayer that not only would bring him joy, but would also bring blessing to the very people he was to be praying for. God culminated it all together. The reason why he withheld is because it wasn't his timing and it wasn't his purpose and it wasn't his plan. But it's amazing how if 
Zechariah would have had his prayer answered earlier, it wouldn't have been so miraculous and so amazing and so anointed. So God made it so both were happening. Because look at the answer there to his prayer in verse 7. Not only was the prayers of the people answered, but the prayer of Zechariah was answered all in one person. I love that about the Lord, how he can do that. But verse 7, your wife Elizabeth, was it verse 7? Whatever, the next one. Your, your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, 13, yeah, and you will call him John. And he will be a joy and a delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he's never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Wow. How, many, how would you like that? An angel saying, this is what your kid is going to be. You're just like, yes. That's awesome. Your wife will bear you a name and you will call, uh, bear you a son and you will call him John. This verse has personal meaning uh, for Christina and I. And this is the verse that the Lord gave us to name our son. But we were disobedient and named him Kevin. I'm just kidding. Uh, we named him John. You know, I love that. But the name John means God is gracious. You know, the mercy of God is so sweet. It's not giving us what we deserve. Some people have said that, right? The grace of God is, I mean, it's just out of this world. There's many different acronyms for it, but the one I like is getting what we don't deserve. It's not not getting what we don't deserve. Merciful to us, but grace giving us what we don't deserve. And certainly, that's what the Lord did with, with me, with Christine, with our son. And here they are. He's to be named John. You're going to have a sin. You're going to name him John. God gives us what we do not deserve. Verse 15, and he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He's never to take wine or the fermented drink. And he's going to be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born or even at birth. John will not be imbibing is, is what it is. He's not going to be touching liquor. And, and anyone who was a Jew would know what in the world this was talking about. This was talking about the vow of the Nazarite. The vow of the Nazarite. Holiness set apart to God. Just not of this world in so many ways. But you can read about that in, for extra credit as well, Numbers 6, 1 through 21. But this is the same vow that Samson took. The idea is that the Spirit of God is what to be is what to be is influencing this man. Pretty wild. Paul says in, in Ephesians 5.18, Do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Colossians 3.17 says, Let the words of Christ dwell in you richly. John was to be permeated by the Spirit of God, and the Word of God is the Spirit, Jesus said. His words are Spirit. And so John was to be holy. He was to be set apart for God's purpose. That's what to, was to be influencing his actions and his thoughts and what he was doing every day. The Holy Spirit. How many of us have got something else? How many of us need to do the old Nazarite vow in our life? To be dedicated 
to the Lord once again in holiness. It's convicting. But notice, holiness precedes a work of the Lord. Holiness precedes the work of the Lord. You want God to do great things in your life? Yes, God is gracious. But set yourself apart for Him. Make a decision. You want God to move in your family and your life? Holy. Be holy. And people go, oh, well, that's legalism. You know what? That's often Satan's ploy to get you to do nothing. Holiness is sweet. It's beautiful. Jesus was holy. He was unblemished by the world. And what we're going to see of John, I think if John were to preach in this room, I think we would all leave. Because he's fierce. He's fierce for the Lord. I think you'd all be deeply offended. I think I, I would be deeply offended above all of you. Because he, you know, the Lord deals with pastors pretty hard. I think he would just, what are you doing? You know what I'm saying? It's like, what does it truly mean to be saved? What is the narrow path? What is he saving us from? What is he saving us to? What's, why is there a lack of power within the church? Why do we have to substitute it with things that are of the world? I have these questions. And I think it comes down to a lack of holiness in my own life, in the life of my sheep. It's a judgment call on myself. Judge yourself. Right? Let the Holy Spirit get in there and, you know, and, and, and speak to you about what those things are and how that looks. Let this word permeate you and me. Change us. See, religion is getting you to do a bunch of stuff on the outside. Yeah, you went to church, check. But I'm still going to just go. I'm still on the throne. But see, when the Holy Spirit fills you, He fills you, He takes over, He calls the shots, and He starts speaking with the inner workings of your heart. And you surrender or you don't. And when you surrender, guess what happens? Life. And love and joy and peace, the fruit of the Spirit starts happening. But when we don't, we've got artificial fruit going on. Plastic fruit. Plastic church. And when you want plastic fruit in your life, plastic church. And you remember when you were a kid, bit into plastic fruit? I haven't. I've heard it's horrible. <laughs> totally. But the idea is that the Spirit of God was to influence this guy. And his purpose was to be used by God of calling the Israelites to repentance in preparation for their Messiah. That was God's purpose for John. Repentance. Calling the nation to repent, to turn from their sin and turn towards the Lord in preparation for the Messiah. Verse 16. He will bring back many people of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make, a ready, make ready a people prepared for the Lord. A people who are prepared for the Lord are people who are reconciled to righteousness, who are holy, who have repented. That's the preparation for the work of the Lord. There's another, no other way we can get to it. 
The spirit and the power of Elijah. That's a, that's a big thing there. But Elijah had a ministry of calling the Israelites to repentance. Remember the Mount Carmel story? There's just one key verse I want to yank out of that, but go read it in 1 Kings chapter 18. But 1 Kings 18, 21, it says, While Elijah, Elijah was confronting King Ahab and all his false prophets, he said, And Elijah came to all the people and said, King, how long will you falter between two opinions? How long will you falter between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. How long will you falter between two opinions? Follow the Lord or follow the devil? Does that sound familiar? What Jesus said in Revelation? I wish that you were hot or cold. John didn't hold back either. As we're going to read later in Luke chapter 3, it says, John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized to him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Here he is, he has a church, people are coming in, and he's, out, he's by the river, he's baptizing people, he says, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Does that sound absolutely just totally the opposite of what you want to hear? I don't want to be called a brood of vipers, and I don't want to be called ignorant. It just strikes at the core of the pride of every single one of us, and he was just preaching it. That he was holy. He was set apart for the Lord, and that's why there was power there. His spirit rested upon him. It wasn't hypocrisy. He was one serious man of God. He was called, calling the people of God to repentance. Repentance means to change your mind and your actions to agree with what God says. To change your mind and your actions to agree with what God says. That means to repent. Repentance is a work of the Holy Spirit. It's not something you manipulate into someone. You can't make them change. You can get them to do the right things, but their heart is rebellious inside. You see, repentance is something God does in, within us. His love comes in, yes, but also the fear, all those things at once. I'm not dismissing any of that. It comes in and he, he causes us to turn and to see things his way. He breaks through the shell. John 16, 8 says, when he comes, that is the Holy Spirit, he will prove the world to be wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. The Holy Spirit convicts us about our sin and, and shows us the righteousness of Christ and the standard and the judgment that awaits the world. That's, that's what he does. And so, how narrow is the way? I think we can dismiss the call for repentance as just fire and brimstone preaching. Jesus did the same. John, in the spirit and the power of Elijah, called for repentance. And this was fulfilling the prophecy that one would prepare the way for the Messiah. A very important verse. If you haven't noted it, make note of it. I would. The Old Testament closes... With Malachi, 400 years prior to the birth of Christ, and it prophesies of John in Malachi chapter 4, 5 through 6. It says, See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before the great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents, or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. 
Another joyful verse for Christmas. That's hardcore stuff. Now, some might also see this verse to include Elijah as being one of those two witnesses at the end of a revelation before the day of the Lord. So this might have double meaning here. But John's ministry, as was, it's clear that this verse is definitely for John and for this time. John's ministry was to prepare God's people for Jesus. Verse 17, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents, their children, you know, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So Zechariah was hearing that prayer, that his prayer was answered and that his wife would have a son and all the things that God would do through John as Gabriel speaking to him and Zechariah speaks in verse 18. Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I'm an old man, and my wife is well along in years. Notice how he rephrased that one. And then the angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you're going to be silent and not be able to speak until the day this happens, because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. Now, it seems like a harmless question. Hey, I don't get it here. But at the root of what it wasn't questioning it was doubt it wasn't questioning it was doubt that's what the difference is because mary questions in just a bit she's like i'm a virgin how's this going to happen not doubting just like i don't want to break your law what's going on here this is different there's doubt at at the root here we're old no way let my younger son remember that story remember abraham He's old in years, and God gives him the promise, and he's standing there, and, and, and he says, and he has this other son from this handmaid named Hagar from Egypt. He got in Egypt, and he has a 13-year-old son named Ishmael, and God says, I'm going to give you a son. He goes, oh, that's so fun, God. That's great. Hey, let Ishmael live before you. May Ishmael live before you. Get, let the blessing be through the son of the flesh, the one I tried to work out your promise in my own way. You know, God is pretty serious about how his plan is to be done his way. Gabriel says, Zechariah, I am Gabriel. I'm the same Gabriel and Daniel with all those visions going on. I'm that guy who stands in the very presence of God. And I came to give you the good news and you hardened your heart. And because Zechariah doubted God's word, the good news, Zechariah became mute until the appointed time. Angels seem to have this ability to make people mute and, and blind. You ever notice that? Remember back in Sodom and Gomorrah, he blinded people. Now here's the mute thing. And we know that fallen angels are demons. And so we find that Jesus is casting out demons who seem to have the effect many times of making people blind and deaf and mute and all those types of things. So that's just something for you to explore in your spare time. Angels seem to have the ability to do those things, but they're very powerful in their arsenal. And obviously, uh, they're not just weak people. They're very extremely powerful and can impact us physically. But the angel made it to where Zechariah couldn't speak until the point of time. Rejecting God's word always has an effect upon us, folks. Always. It's very interesting for Zechariah, unbelief in what God said caused him to be paralyzed in the area of his life that was critical to being a priest. Verse 21, meanwhile, the people were waiting. Let's just finish this up here. We're waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. 
We're getting tired. Why are you in there so long? We want to have lunch. Does that sound familiar? Why is this going on forever? When he came out, he could not speak to them. Oh, you wish. They realized he had seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them, but remained unable to speak. And when his time of service was complete, he returned home. Just a little note that I noticed this week as we're also going through Luke at the Christian Aid Center and Marcus Quarters leading that. Um, Do we let disabilities keep us from completing our service to the Lord? Here he is, he can't talk, and yet he fulfilled his duty, his service to the Lord. There's something to be said about that. Pray about that. That's interesting. How easy it is to say, oh, you know, can't feel my right leg. I'm not going to do something today. Those are serious things. But when God's called you to something, complete it. Finish it. He'll give you the strength and the power to do it. But after this, verse 24, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, verse 25, she says, and in these days he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. How beautiful. How beautiful is that? The worship and thankfulness that flowed from Elizabeth. The Lord has done this for me. There's no way she could have done it. The Lord has done this for me. There's nothing like knowing that the Lord has answered your prayer. It wasn't your things you've done, but God just did it. There's nothing like that. It's beautiful. And her heart comes out in these days. In my old age, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. God lifted her burden and replaced it with a blessing she could not even begin to comprehend. Her son would be the forerunner of the Messiah. And we're going to stop there. I'm excited about uh, kind of being in Luke. We're going to kind of just so happen to hit the Christmas themed stuff right at Christmas time, so that'll be different. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us at the appointed time. Lord, I ask uh, as we go this morning that the things of your Spirit that have been shared would connect with the hearts of your children. That here we are, Lord, as we prayed in the beginning. They're your lambs and we're hungry. I know that you've spoken this morning in various areas to people, things that I don't even know that are going on, and yet your word has pricked someone's heart in here in a way that they needed to hear. So, Lord, I pray against the uh, birds of the air that would come and take that out, or the hard heart, or the cares of the world. I pray the word would go down. Repentance or change or application would flow from a life, and there would be much fruit. I pray if someone is struggling uh, this morning in these areas, know that the Lord is gracious and He is merciful. Yes, He is holy. But He longs to be with you. He longs to go after you and pick you up when you've been wandering away and pick you up and put you on His shoulders and bring you back. You're His lamb. And he is the shepherd of your soul. Cast your burdens at his feet this morning. Know that he loves you. Know that he's calling you to things that you can't possibly do in your own strength. 
So Lord, we ask that your Holy Spirit would fill your church this morning and that we would love one another and obey you. To your glory, Father. In the name of Jesus, amen.